Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent guest lecture with the faculty and students at Ilma University in Stanford, titled Virtual Leadership, Skill Sets and Mindsets for the Future of Work. everyone to our webinar. Today we have a very special guest with, with us, Dr. Jonathan Westover. He is an award-winning best-selling author, global thought leader, chair, professor, organizational leadership, uh, academic director, center for social impact, impact or OOD and HR consultant. So let's welcome Dr. Jonathan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to meet with all of you. We are very excited to hear you. Yeah, I'm excited to to share some thoughts with you. And over the next, I believe, about 30 minutes, I'll present some materials. Uh, I welcome your comments and questions. And then at, uh, you're, you're welcome to ask questions throughout the presentation. But certainly at the tail end of the presentation, uh, you can um, ask questions then as well. And I'm also happy to um, be available to respond to questions by email. Uh, you can reach me at john, J-O-N, dot westover, W-E-S-T-O-V-E-R, at gmail.com. Okay, well, thank you for the introduction. Thanks for um, the invitation to join you. I'm excited to talk to you about virtual leadership and skill sets and mindsets for the future of work. I thought I would just start off, um, you know, with a, per- a brief personal introduction. And in part, I, would, I just want to make sure you're aware of, of my recent book, um, as was mentioned, you know, I wear a variety of hats at the university uh, here in Utah, and I also do consulting work um, through my firm, Human Capital Innovations. And uh, this last fall, I published The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, and many of the ideas and concepts that we're going to be exploring together today are found in that book, and it's available, you know, on Amazon or, or other um, outlets. Um, so if, if what we're talking about today is interesting to you, um, I encourage you to, to take a look. It's um, part of Kindle Unlimited. So if you subscribe to that, you can get the ebook for free and, uh, and hopefully you, you'd find it to be helpful and worth your time. I, I'm married for about 19 years and I have six children. My wife is also a professor. She teaches math. And my youngest child is seven. My oldest child is 17. So we have a full household and a lot of fun and excitement, uh, especially during this COVID year um, where we've all been schooling and working from home. So it's been truly an adventure. And I suspect that many of you can relate uh, to that kind of a situation. And in part, that's going to be what we're discussing together today. So first, I wanted to explain why I chose the word alchemy 
for the title of my book. Uh, and I think it, it relates back to the topic for today as well. Uh, I don't know if that's a term you're familiar with, uh, but the, the idea of alchemy is that it's kind of, it was the forerunner back in the middle ages of chemistry, this mixture of arts, speculative, speculative philosophy and the, the physical sciences. So prior to more scientific understanding, we didn't fully have a grasp on the physical world. Um, there's kind of this mixture of, of the magical mindset and worldview along with some elements of science, along with intuition and, and speculation and philosophy. And I, I believe all of that comes together towards this idea of creating something greater than what you started with. Um, so when people talked about alchemy in the Middle Ages, for example, they had people searching for the, the, uh, the formula, so to speak, to change rocks into gold or, or things like that. So you take some item that's already, you know, has value, and then you, you, you put it through this process, and then you create something even greater than the original object, something even more valuable. And I believe that's the process that we all have to go through as we try to become truly remarkable leaders. Uh, we all have innate value. As human beings, we all deserve dignity and respect. We all uh, come from love and abundance. We all have the capacity and the, the potential to do great things, uh, but it doesn't just happen automatically. We have to work and continue to grow and learn and develop and over time, we, we have the potential to become something great and have a tremendous impact and influence on those around us and help them to become great as well. So in the book, I talk a lot about the process that we go through uh, in addition to specific topics that I, and skills and competencies that leaders need. Um, I try to walk readers through a process of discovering their own personal alchemy of their own personal leadership and how they can develop into and blossom into their most dynamic and uh, capable selves. And I, I would encourage you to just consider that term and consider how it might relate back to you and what it might mean for you as you go um, forward in life, trying to consider, you know, trying to uh, develop into your full potential. Now, just to start things off, I wanted to frame this, uh, the, the title of the presentation today, you know, is related to remote work and uh, skill sets and mindsets around being able to work in a virtual world. Now, we know that for a long time, there have been dramatic shifts in the nature of work. Uh, and there's been many technological innovations influencing those shifting working conditions. Uh, many people consider that we're currently in what is called the fourth industrial revolution, the fourth wave of the industrial revolution or industrial revolution 4.0. So starting back with the initial um, wave of the industrial revolution, we saw new technologies, new machinery being produced that was able to do some of the tedious work that, that human workers had done previously. And of course, through that process, we, we gained this new equipment, this new technology, and it displaced workers, right? So some people, um, their trades, their crafts, what they had done for work and employment previously could now be done much more easily by a machine. And so they had to find other means of work. Um, but it also opened up many new avenues for work and new jobs and new skills 
um, became required. We've seen that every stage as we've gone through the last couple hundred years uh, through these different waves of the Industrial Revolution, uh, as new technologies disrupt the labor market, disrupt the world of work, and ultimately, ultimately end up displacing some workers and some tasks and some types of skills, uh, but also open the doors to entirely new arenas that perhaps we never even considered before or conceived of. And I think of, for example, with the rise of the internet, uh, how many of you 15 years ago were thinking about social media marketing? Uh, my guess is the answer would be zero, right? Because it wasn't a thing. Um, so, so prior to the launch of Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, um, none of which existed 15 years ago, or, or eh, I, Facebook, I think was about 2006, 2007. Anyways, um, around that time, like none of those existed. So the whole concept of social media marketing didn't exist. Now it's a huge um, industry, tons of jobs. It's a technical skill set that you need to develop and entire new a range of occupations created by this new technology. And that's just one small example. We could go into many, many examples. Um, and so sometimes people worry that the sky is falling when they think about disruptive and innovative technologies that are changing the nature of work. And, you know, and I understand that because people don't like change and people don't like disruption and they, they want it to have a sense of certainty and safety and when they're forced to adapt, that can be, that can make you nervous. So I understand that, but we don't need to fear that the sky is falling. In fact, there, these new disruptive technologies are opening the door to, to endless new possibilities. So that's something that I, I really value and I'm excited about as I think about the future of work coming in the next 10, 20 plus years. Also consider how things have shifted over the last let's say the last 50, 30 years, um, what has changed in the world during that time that has shifted the nature of work and how we lead in the workplace. Uh, we've seen increasing globalization and interconnectivity across the globe in terms of in, uh, interconnected uh, labor markets and supply chains and everything related to how businesses operate and where how they reach their customers. All of that has become more integrated over the last several decades uh, to the point now where we're in the middle of this pandemic and people aren't traveling. And while there has been some economic downturn, in, in large part, people have been able to adopt and adapt. They've been able to adopt technologies and adapt and move to more virtual environments um, to continue the work that they do, to reach their customers, to continue to get products to the customers, to continue continue to innovate and grow their companies and the people within those companies. That probably wouldn't have been possible, um, or at least it would have been far more difficult even a decade or two ago. Um, but we have the technologies to facilitate that. And, and so in many ways, the, the, the pandemic has been an accelerant. It has been a catalyst to move us even faster into the future of work uh, and forcing companies to, to either die or adapt and adopt these technologies in order um, to, to maintain a competitive advantage. So I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what the future of work is going to look like exactly, but I do, I can see what the trends have been 
in recent decades, and I can see how it's moving us into the future. And there are certain clear patterns. So one is clearly increased virtual workforce, right? And not just because of the pandemic. We were already seeing a clear trajectory that direction prior to the pandemic, um, but uh, the pandemic just accelerated that process. And even once we're out of the pandemic and people have vaccine, they're vaccinated and they can safely go back to work, uh, many employees are still going to want to work remotely. And so the pendulum is not going to swing all the way back to the way it was before. It might find some kind of balance in the middle um, and you might have more hybrid work arrangements, but the reality is you're going to have far more people post-pandemic working virtually than you ever saw pre-pandemic. Uh, so that's one major trend. Another major trend that we're going to continue to see um, due to technological disruption and globalization and technological innovation is the continued rise of the gig economy and the contingent workforce, contract workers. And there's, there's regularly new entrants to the market uh, around these new platforms to connect workers to organizations to do project-based work. Um, so, you know, one of the classic examples when we think about the gig economy is a company like Uber. And I don't know if you have Uber in Pakistan or if you have a, a kind of your own version of Uber. I, I had lived in, uh, in Jakarta, Indonesia a couple of years ago, and they don't use Uber. They have um, Gojek. It's a company called Gojek, but it's essentially just like Uber and it's the, the Indonesian version. So perhaps you have something like that in Pakistan. Um, that's a classic example of the gig economy at work, the, the, the flexibility to the organization to provide this service um, with a, an incredibly flexible workforce and, and labor force, uh, the flexibility on the side of the workers who can not work or they can work and it doesn't really matter, like they get to choose, they have complete autonomy and complete control over how and when they work. Um, and both sides tend to really like that flexibility. And so what we've seen over the last couple of decades is a continued rise in the percentage of, of jobs in the gig economy versus the regular um, formal economy. And that's only increased during the pandemic. So uh, even more platforms have opened up and companies are connecting. So if you, if you do something like design work uh, or, or um, coding or, or some sort of technology-driven work, there are platforms where you can just get connected with a company in China or in the US or in South Africa or wherever they need whatever project done. You bid for it, you get the job, you do the work. And when you're done, you know, you can either try to get more work from that company uh, or you can move on to other companies, or maybe you just, you've earned enough money and you don't want to work anymore and you want to go travel. You can do that too. So that, that level of flexibility is something that has been highly ad adopted by organizations and by young millennial and Gen Z workers in the labor force. Uh, I could go on and on. There's many of these types of kind of meta trends that are occurring right now that the pandemic has just accelerated. But the, the, the bottom line is technology is changing the way we work and it's changing the skills that are needed um, as we work together in this interconnected global um, labor market to, to be effective, right? So here you can see uh, this graphic uh, adapted from the Institute for the Future, uh, their future work skills report in 2020. Uh, their, their results showed um, some of the, those meta drivers 
to some of these global changes and some of these uh, the, the changes in the nature of work around the world. Uh, along the outside ring, you can see some of those. So we're in an, in an increasingly computational world uh, where everything is measured, everything is tracked. Massive increase in sensors and processing power make the world a more programmable system. There are super structured organizations. So social technologies drive new forms of production and value creation. And you see these mega corporations. So for example, in the US, it's actually politically a kind of a big debate right now is you have these big conglomerate organizations like Amazon, uh, like Facebook uh, and, and other tech companies uh, that people are worried that they're, they're becoming too much of a monopoly in their space and that that could cause uh, a lot of problems. But the reality is we've been seeing that trend through these superstructure towards these superstructured organizations for a really long time. A globally inter, uh, connected and interconnected world with the increased global interconnectivity, and it puts diversity and adaptability at the center of organizational operations. And I've already mentioned this a little bit, and we're going to talk more about this one as we move for forward in the presentation. This new media ecology with new communication tools uh, that required new media literacies. This is continually changing. I, I'm trying to think of the, the most recent major disruptor in kind of the, the media space. And there's probably experts on this call that could speak to this more than I can. But I think of, for example, one of the newer social media platforms, um, TikTok. Now that's, that's something that I was not even aware of a year and a half ago and kind of, targeted more towards younger, uh, younger generation. Uh, and it, it's exploded. It, it's huge now. And lots of companies are trying to figure out how to leverage this new creative platform that essentially has the same components as other platforms, but it focuses on fun and dance and music. Um, and they're trying to figure out how can they leverage this new media platform uh, to, to advertise and to get their message out and to influence customers and such. Uh, the reality is this is it's it's a constantly um, changing world in the, in the, in relation to the media and in relation to how we connect and communicate with each other. Uh, next, you see the rise of smart machines and systems. So not only robotics um, that nudge human workers out of uh, those rote repetitive tasks, but machine learning and AI that can that can displace those types of routinized behaviors and tasks that happen. Um, day in and day out. And just like the cotton gin replaced cotton pickers and, or, or people who uh, processed cotton back in the early stages of the industrial revolution, these machines and these, these technologies and AI and machine learning um, are going to displace many of those repetitive tasks that people do. Uh, I, for one, am actually grateful for that because I don't enjoy repetitive tasks and I would prefer that I could have a machine do those aspects of my job for me so I can focus on more strategic, um, high level uh, types of, of work in, in what I do, more creative types of work. Another is extreme longevity. So there's a lot of different elements to shifting demographics around the world right now. Um, but one of those is uh, that we see inverted uh, population pyramids in many parts of the world. And you see that people are living longer and longer due to, um, due to advancements in the medical fields and new scientific discoveries. And that means there's going to be more and more older individuals with a reduced number of younger 
um, in individuals in the population who are working to support themselves and the rest the older population. And that has um, a lot of implications for the nature of careers and of learning and how we connect with each other socially. So we could dissect each of those bubbles and each of those drivers and have like big, long conversations about each of them. Um, but I'm going to let that suffice for now, um, kind of as for the context. And I want to talk more about what's in the middle of this circle. Um, so what are the skills? So we know the drivers that are influencing the shifting nature of work. What are the skills, the transfer, the transferable skills that are going to be necessary uh, to help people be successful in the future of work? Uh, one is cognitive load management. We need to be able to manage uh, an increasingly diverse, complicated, and messy um, set of interactions and work. I need to wear a lot of hats. I need to be able to juggle a lot of balls and keep them in the air and keep track of everything and make sure that I'm um, staying on top of things. And so people who have that skill set are, are going to rise to the top. The, the ability for virtual collaboration. When we're working remotely, I have to be able to work effectively. Now, you know, it's, it's awesome that I can join you. It's 9 a.m. in the morning in Utah. It's 8, uh, now probably 8.20 or so p.m. in Pakistan. And that's awesome that we can connect this way um, through virtual technologies. And we're all getting much more comfortable with that kind of an arrangement. But there's still, it's not just the technology and it's not just the ability for us to get synced up like this. How can we work closely together? How can we work collaboratively to drive new strategic thinking and innovation within our organization? And, and that's a skill that needs to be developed. And so the, the geographic barriers to our ability to do work have completely broken down. I don't need to collaborate primarily with people who live right near me or around me. I literally can work, you know, have a cross-functional um, cross-national team of people like you from Pakistan and other people from, in China and people in South America and in Africa and Europe. And like, we could have this super diverse team all brought together via technology. The only real constraint is the time difference so that we're not making anyone, you know, get up in the middle of the night to have a conversation. And otherwise, uh, you know, we have that ability if we know how to interact effectively with each other. And that's, that's the trick. Uh, new media literacy, I already talked about the new media ecology, but we need to be literate across, uh, across functions, across uh, techno technological platforms. We need to have cross-cultural competence so that when I'm working with that person who's you know, in Poland and I'm working with another person who's in uh, Nigeria and another person who, who is in Tonga, that we can understand each other and uh, respect each other and work effectively with each other. We need to have novel and adaptive thinking, uh, sense-making, design thinking, transdisciplinarity. I could talk about each of these um, at length. Uh, for sake of time, though, I think I'll, I'll move on. But you get the picture. Like These are all skills that aren't specifically related to any particular occupation, any particular job type, or any particular level within an organization. Um, these are exactly the types of skills that are are very difficult, if if not impossible, for machines and AI to displace. So if I want to have a job in the future, I need to learn how to develop these types of skills because there's always going to be work for people who can do these things. 
I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. And I want to talk about a couple of proverbs really quick. I've, I've lived um, and spent a lot of time in Asian countries. I lived in South Korea for about two and a half years and learned a lot about the culture and the language while I, I, I lived there. And one of the things I learned very quickly is that they have these really, these interesting idioms or proverbs that, that teach really important lessons. And so the older generation would teach these to the children and these life lessons would stick with them throughout their life and, and uh, help them develop. One of those is uh, this idea of chulam jie means bluer than indigo and indigo is this deep, vibrant blue, the blue, what people call the bluest of blues. So here in this picture, for example, you see this kind of indigo color, this vibrant blue. In Asian cultures, there's a lot of deference given to, um, to those who are older, those who are in positions of authority, those who are um, teachers. And, and the younger generation is expected to look up to um, the, the elders, right? The, the people who uh, came before them. And the idea behind bluer than indigo is that if I'm looking towards, say, my teacher, and they're indigo. They are the bluest of blues. They're the most remarkable of remarkable. The true mark of a great leader or of a great teacher is to help their pupil, to help those that they lead to become bluer than indigo or greater than themselves, to surpass themselves in their capacities and capabilities. That, that, go, that flies in the face of how many people lead their organizations, especially in Western societies, many leaders see themselves as they have to have kind of a strong leadership style. They have to, um, they have to get people to kind of uh, bow to them, so to speak, like, like really um, uh, put themselves below, like the leader puts themselves above their people and they exert their power and their control and their influence over their people. This is a completely different mindset. This is a mindset where uh, I recognize the potential of my people. I recognize the potential of my pupils, the people I teach and lead, and I'm going to do everything I can to help them to develop, to fulfill their, their potential, to, to maximize their capacities and their capabilities. And I love this. I think this is at the heart of what good leadership is all about. Another proverb 
is umur anekeguri. This one means frog in a well. Now, a frog at the bottom of a well, if you can imagine, if you were a frog at the bottom of a well, you look up and you only see the small pillar of sky above you. There's only a little bit of light. So at the bottom of this well, your, your view of the world is very limited. Um, it's dark, it's wet, it's cold. There's probably not a lot of options in terms of things to do, things to eat. Um, but on the other hand, you're, you're also safe. Uh, there's probably no predators down there that are going to try to get you. Um, and the reality is we are all like frogs at the bottom of a well in one way or another. We all uh, are born in our own wells, so to speak. Our own cultures, our own context with social norms, uh, values that we are taught. Uh, and so all of this shapes the way we view the world. And all of us have a limited view of the world through our upbringings. Uh, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with those values that we're taught or how we're socialized, um, but just by the nature of us growing up in a particular society, in a particular family, we do have limited views as children. As we get older, we learn, we grow, we interact with other people who are different than us. And it's, it's like we start to rise out of the well. We start to climb up the wall and we, we get closer to the top. Eventually, we get to the top of that well and we look out. And for the first time, we see the expanse of the sky. We see the landscape. We see uh, all of the varieties of animals, water, mountains, streams, beaches. You know, like there's all these different things that we had no idea that even existed when we were at the bottom of this well. Some people embrace that. They, they get excited because they see, wow, like there's so much diversity in the world. Um, and they, 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 they're excited by that. Um, but other people get scared by that because they start to realize um, that it's not as safe perhaps as they, th they thought it was when they were at the bottom of the well, because now there's predators. There's a lot of unknowns. They knew every inch of that well. They understood they had certainty around their, their life experience. Once you get out of the well though, there's lots to explore. There's lots of new things to learn. There's a lot of things you just don't know. And you're going to interact with people who come from completely different backgrounds than you. There's all these other frogs that have been in all these other wells um, who had their own upbringings, who you're going to have a challenge relating to. So some people kind of revert back into the well. They just, they decide, no, I, I don't want to go out. And they, they climb back into their well. And that's kind of like, like sinking back into your dogma and your ideologies. Uh, others look around and they notice, hey, there's all these other wells dotting the landscape that I, my well's not the only well. There's actually thousands of wells. And they see other little frogs peeking their heads out of the wells across the landscape. And so they decide they want to go explore and they want to go look at these other wells and they find another well that looks comfortable to them. And they end up going into that well. And that's kind of like trading ideologies for ideologies. Uh, so sometimes people will change religious beliefs and they'll go from one kind of dogmatic set of religious beliefs and end up trading it for another dogmatic set of religious beliefs. Um, or sometimes same thing with political beliefs, economic attitudes and beliefs. Um, any ideology can represent this well. And there's nothing wrong with having core values and beliefs, but there is something that's dangerous about being so completely guided by our ideology that we want to tune out everything else and basically act as if it doesn't exist, act as if our way is the only way, our way is the only right way. Um, and in an increasingly interconnected world, 
we need people like one of the primary skill sets we need for people in a remote workforce is for people to be able to work effectively with others from dramatically different backgrounds. We need them to truly value and treat with dignity and respect those who have completely different understandings of the world, different cultures, different upbringings, different backgrounds. And this brings us into this idea of, I'm sure what you've talked a lot about in the past in other classes or with other guest speakers, this, this idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. On the left side of the screen, you see the diversity wheel, and you can see in the center, there's really obvious forms of diversity, like gender difference, physical and mental ability, age, race, ethnicity. Um, but as you start to go into the outer rings, there are aspects of difference that are harder to see on the surface. Like you don't really know about it until you get to know the person. There might be cues, social cues, but you don't really know until you start to get to know the person. And as you get to the outer ring, there's even more levels of difference. Um, what we need to be able to do is create a safe work environment with our teams and increasingly diverse and um, global teams so that everyone feels like they have an opportunity to be represented that they're treated consistently and fairly, that their thoughts, ideas, and perspectives matter and are valued. And ultimately that the, the organization engages everyone to maximize that full potential of individuals where innovation thrives and views, beliefs, and values are fully integrated. What we wanna go for is not just diversity for diversity's sake, where we have you know people from different countries and people from different backgrounds, but where every, we have a diverse team that's treated consistently and fairly, where everyone is invited um, to contribute and where everyone, everyone's contributions are fully valued and integrated. That is a dynamic environment. And that is truly what we need most in this new age of interconnected virtual work. Um, I'll end with this because I think I'm going a little bit long um, but this requires us to lead with a growth mindset. When we have a fixed mindset, uh, we, we think things are established and that they can't change. Uh, we are what we are. We're not going to make efforts to adjust. A growth mindset, though, we recognize that failures are a stepping stone, that anytime we, we, um, something doesn't work out, it's an opportunity for growth. And even regardless of whatever our background may be, whatever disadvantages we may have had in our past, that we can take control of our future and we can develop and grow and learn and, and surround ourselves with like-minded people who also will be committed to our growth and development. And we can become uh, who we want to become. And ideally, if we as leaders, if we can model that mindset for our people uh, and then help them to, to adopt that mindset, our teams are going to thrive. Um, so this, I, I guess I'll end here. Questions for organizational leaders. What does this all mean um, in an increasingly diverse, um, messy, complex, interconnected global uh, marketplace? Uh, how are organizational leaders going to be able to lead effective organizations and lead their people effectively, uh, and particularly when you have these virtual teams? What are the core competencies of organizations that are prepared for these disruptive technological disruptions? What does this mean for organizational budgets and technical footprints? 
whose role is it in the corporation or in governments to be the futurist to think about all of these things and try to start moving the ball forward? What are the new professional competencies of the future virtual worker? How quickly can organizations recruit uh, and pivot roles that were not previously in the company? And should new employee skills, competencies, and capabilities be built, borrowed, or bought? These are just a few of the questions. We could come up with a lot more. There are so many important questions for organizational leaders to consider as we move into the future of virtual work. Uh, with that, I think I went a little bit long. I want to make sure I give you plenty of time for questions. Um, like I said at the beginning, uh, if you don't have a chance to ask your question now, feel free to email me at john.westover at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn uh, at Jonathan Westover uh, on LinkedIn. If you, if you search Jonathan Westover, I'll pop right up. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, yes, any questions? Okay, hello Jonathan, thank you so much for being here and accepting my invitation from Alma University. Thanks a lot for your precious time and support. My question is to you, how can a leader design his workforce lively? What major hurdles he can face while shaping his workforce? What major hurdles do, will a leader face when shaping their workforce? Um, um, I mean, that's uh, that's an incredibly important. Workforce lively. Sorry, what was that last part? How can a leader design his workforce lively? Lively. Yeah, so we, we want we want a motivated and engaged workforce. And if I'm trying as a as a leader to create that kind of a dynamic culture, um, there are definitely some major hurdles that I need to um, get over or landmines that I need to avoid. Uh, I think that the number one most important thing that we need to be doing as leaders is to create a safe, a genuinely safe environment for people to create and innovate. And part of the creative and innovative process is that people are going to have setbacks, that people, like not everything that I do is gonna work. Uh, and, and so I need to, as a leader, if I want my people to be motivated and I want them to be engaged in the work, I want them to be excited about coming to work every day. I want them to feel like they have meaning and purpose in their work. Then I need to encourage creativity and innovation, give them the opportunity to do, you know, what they do best and leverage their expertise every day. And then I need to make it safe for them to try things that, that don't work uh, as long as they're continually learning. So the, so what I'm shooting for is not necessarily the outcome. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the process. The process really matters when we're talking about growth mindset and innovation. Uh, and the, the, I mean, pretty much every great technological scientific breakthrough that's ever happened in the history of mankind uh, has come through a lot of trial and error. Uh, you never arrive at it immediately, ever. And so it's no different in the workplace. And so if you're trying to come up with that new product, that new service, that new app, uh, you know, whatever, um, if, if I don't have a safe place where people feel like they can um, that they can try to do those things without being punished. Um, if I can't do that, then people, people are going 
to revert back to safety and protection. They're going to play it safe. They're not going to rock the boat. They're going to, you know, uh, do what their boss says, not speak up or challenge their boss. Um, and they're, they're going to do what they feel is safe, what they're confident in. They're not going to push the edge of their understanding or of their, their expertise. That's dangerous for an organization, not only from, you know, the standpoint of competitive advantage, you can't maintain, you can't create or maintain a competitive advantage in a global marketplace if you're not continually innovating and you can't have an engaged um, and uh, innovative and happy workforce uh, if, if uh, people don't feel like they uh, are safe to, to try new things. So that, that's, that's my first thought. Uh, I'm not sure if that gets exactly to your question, but uh, that's one of the, the major um, things that I think need to, needs to be on the radar of every leader today. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. Yes, do we have any other question? Okay, we have one question from Dr. Fakhar. Uh, he has posted it in the chat. I'll just read it to you. It's uh, where leadership stands in current current digital era, especially during or after COVID nineteen. What is your point of view? Yeah, I think I think the old um, stereotypes of what it means to be a leader um, are are less and less valid, uh, and so I, I think that that was true before the pandemic. But you still had people who bought into kind of gender st gendered stereotypes about leadership um, that that bought into um, this idea. I mean, there, there's really old research that talked even about how tall a leader was or how physically imposing a leader was and how those are seen as the great leaders. Um, now, that's all been debunked in recent decades. And so I don't think pretty much anyone believes that anymore, but you still have these the lingering stereotypes and effects of those types of mentalities amongst particularly in the older generations about you know the kind of this this uber confident leader who who always portrays that they know everything that they have the answer for everything uh, and that um you know they're, they're kind of the hero driving the ship this kind of superhero model of a leader that that simply i mean really in in recent in in the over the last decade i think that's a lot of lost a lot of traction and and people see that as a less relevant form of leadership but certainly as we've gone through the pandemic it's shown a light on the limitations of that kind of an approach um, there are times that you need a really strong powerful um, confident person to step in in a time of crisis um, to lead people or an organization but what we've also seen during the pandemic is that a time of crisis also requires flexibility. It requires like genuine empathy, the ability to relate to your people, to be transparent and communicate openly. And those aren't the types of characteristics that you typically think about with this old paradigm of leadership. So coming out of the pandemic, what I, what I think we've really learned for anyone who's kind of resisting um, this mindset shift around leadership uh, I think what pretty much everyone has learned at this point is that we need to adopt a new way. Uh, we need to get rid of old paradigms and gendered stereotypes. We need to get rid of our old assumptions around leadership. And we need to look towards individuals who have emotional intelligence, who can genuinely and authentically connect with their people, show empathy, 
who can be servant leaders and ultimately who can be there to support and sustain their people. Uh, leaders who have done that during the pandemic have been very successful. Leaders who haven't done that during the pandemic, largely those organizations have failed. Um, and so I, I think ultimately that's probably one of the bigger lessons that we've seen come out of this pandemic environment. So thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for being with us. It was a pleasure to have you. And I would just say, I was listening to the whole um, presentation like very attentively and it was so interesting. I really, really enjoyed it. And especially when you spoke about thank the frog in the, at the bottom of the well. That was like, it was like, I could see that all around us. And I'm like, yeah, people should uh, spread their wings, try to explore new horizons. This is so important. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a real pleasure joining all of you. Uh, like I said, feel free to reach out, connect on LinkedIn. Um, and I would love to have, you know, continue the conversation. Um, and I hope everyone has a great evening. It, it was just great. And uh, we, it, was, it was our pleasure to have you with us today. And um, I hope to see you again sometime. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.